Hi, Stewheads. Today we'll be talking about strange conflicts. From a feud over a pig's, a riot about eggnog, to a duel using sausages as weapons of choice. I'm your host, Steve. And I'm Leah. Buckle your seatbelts today and stay tuned as we bring you some of history's most hysterical conflicts. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. So, Steve, what do we have to celebrate? Well, this is March the 1st. Now, um, you know, the um, the Romans actually began the year on March the 1st. Their calendar year actually used to begin March the 1st for a while, but uh, so it was the beginnings, new beginning, the springtime, and, uh, you know, everything was uh, starting up all over again. And so that was the beginning of a new year. Um, today, uh, actually Saturday night on March the 5th, we spring forward again, getting ready for the, the longer days coming back. Right. I um, think they typically, I think well, it's, it's supposed really to be t- like on the, on Sunday. Yeah, you're right. But who, who's going to stay up till 2 a.m. to do that? I mine up ahead the, the night right. before. So Saturday night, don't forget to spring forward. Unless you really want to get up at 2 in the morning Sunday and, and see the actual time go ahead to 3 o'clock, you know, well, I guess you could do that. It would be fun. Anyway, today, March 1st is World Compliment Day. It goes right along with our Be Kind um, motto here at Remnant Stew. The unofficial holiday was started in the Netherlands. Those people are so nice in the Netherlands, aren't they? By by Hans Porvelet in 2001. The day is now celebrated in many European countries. Why don't we celebrate it in the United States? I think it's time we we get started it celebrating. It is time. So we're we're going to start. We're right initiating here right it now. here on the stew. World Compliment Day. That's a lovely sweater you're wearing, uh, Leah. Why? Thank you. <laughs> the holiday was created as a way to spread happiness and increase productivity. People are encouraged to use words instead of gifts as a way to praise and appreciate people. The idea is to con- uh, create the most positive day in the world. Now to celebrate, pay compliments to everyone you meet. Appreciate family, co-workers, and friends for their hard work and for being there in your life. That's a great idea. I love that That's idea right. for And you did a good job on that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate your compliment. And by the way, Phil, you're looking good today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, now that we moved, we've got that done, we'll move on to March 11th, which is, gosh, I, I've never realized this was a holiday. This is one of my favorite characters uh, in history, Johnny Appleseed Day. March 11th honors one of America's great legends, Johnny Appleseed. He was a real person, born John Chapman. He was among the American settlers who were captivated by the movement west across the continent. As Johnny Appleseed traveled west, he sold apple trees and seeds to settlers and planted many apple trees himself along the way. Johnny Appleseed continued planting and selling apple trees for over 40 years. With every apple tree that was planted, the legend grew. So celebrate today with an apple-rich menu. Include fresh apples for snacks and some applesauce or apple pie for dessert. And make plans to plant an apple tree. I love apples. Apples are really my favorite favorite. I love apple pie. (laughs) I love apple pie, too. Caramel apples. Caramel apples. Okay, that's good. That's good. Now, on uh, on this day in history, kind of a more somber note, uh, March 1st, 1932, uh, was the day that the Lindbergh baby vanished. On the evening of March 1, 1932, the pioneering aviator Charles Lindbergh was at home in New Jersey with his wife, Anne, 
and their 20-month-old son, Charlie Jr. At 7.30 p.m., a nanny laid the toddler down to sleep in his crib. About two hours later, Charles heard a noise he thought sounded like a crate smashing, but he didn't think anything of it. Then at 10 p.m., the nanny, frantic with worry, reported that the baby had disappeared. In his bedroom, Charles found a handwritten ransom note. On May 12th, a truck driver found a child's body in woods near Lindbergh's home. It was little Charles. Two years later, the police arrested a German-born carpenter, Bruno Richard Hauptmann, who had a record of robbery and whose garage contained notes from the ransom money. Uh, protesting his innocence, he went to the electric chair, but many observers were convinced that he must have had help. So still kind of a mystery. Was this, uh, was he, did he act alone or was there right. uh, anyone else that was involved in, in, in this? It turned out to be um, uh, a very sad tale for, for the Lindbergh family, for sure, and in, in American history. But it was a huge uh, media story of the time. He, he, it just garnered all kinds right. of, of attention. Right. Uh, Lindbergh was such a popular hero at the right. time, you know. And unfortunately, it just ended. So, and I, I want to say, don't quote me on this, but I want to say that they, they determined that the baby had been dead almost immediately. Right. There was no, no chance at ransom or anything like that. Anyway, so on to strange Our topic conflicts. for today: strange conflicts. Yes. So, have you had any strange conflicts in your life? Uh, you know, I can't, re- <laughs> I can't recall any right offhand. Um, that that really come to mind. No, I've managed to maintain pretty much conflict free for most of my life. For, well, very good. I raised three boys, well, that's so true. it was not conflict free. And some of the things, so two of them were eighteen months apart, and they shared a room. And some of the fights that they got into, right? Uh, one, I mean, and I'm talking, you know fist fights uh-huh. okay <laughs> that i got angry about and they would get over it in right. no time and i would stay angry that's about typical it. with boys they, once it's done it's done they're 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 friends again they're buddies again you but know. they absolutely fought tooth and nail over whether there was air and oxygen <laughs> uh then another time the difference between chicken nuggets and chicken tenders there you because go. That's, that's important, that's important that's information <laughs> and then they used to fight over who had to turn off the light at night they would both get right. in bed and now granted one of them usually got in bed and i'm not going to name names but you know who you are (laughs) 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 sam would get into bed at the in the top bunk later like after after his brother joe and then and forget quote unquote forget to turn off the light every single night and joe would like i'm not turning it off i'm not and then they would fight they would fight about they would get up and not turn off the light they would get up and fight fight over (laughs) so so they ended up going several weeks without a light bulb in their room (laughs) so there you go that solved that problem mom good for you (laughs) now one of the the most well-known conflicts is in in the United States anyway is the Hatfields and the McCoys. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, and you know I am descendant from the Hatfields. No, I did not know that. I yes, and <laughs> while I can't prove it, I'm pretty sure that McCoy blood runs through my mother in law's veins. <laughs> well, Don't tell her I said that. That explain the two boys fighting over the <laughs> light bulb. <laughs> right. It, it, yeah, it runs in our family. So. The feud between the Hatfields and McCoys is a famous one known by nearly everyone. The two families lived along along the Tug Fork of the Big Sandy River with the Hatfields on the West Virginia side and the McCoys on the Kentucky side. Mm -hmm. The feud lasted for almost three decades, 28 28 years. years. 
between 1863 and 1891. <clears throat> Tensions started between the prosperous William Anderson Hatfield, known as Devil Ants. So yeah. I think that's a glimpse into his character. Well, I wonder which side called him that, his <laughs> right. own family or the other side? Actually, <laughs> Maybe I, some think, of both. I think they all did. <laughs> uh, and he was a successful timber merchant and employed mm-hmm. dozens of men, including some McCoys. Right. And uh, and his he had uh, conflict with Randolph or Old Rannell McCoy. Mm-hmm. So the first event in the feud was the murder of Randolph's brother, Asa Harmon McCoy. Now, both families, for the most part, had fought in the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. But there was Asa, who was who had served in the Union Army right. and so was seen as a traitor even by some of his own family. He was killed by the Logan Wildcats, a local militia group whose members included Devil Ants as well as other Hatfields. Now, some people have concluded that that his murder was the stage for the feud. Mm-hmm. But most historians now see this incident as a standalone event. Right. But then there's the pig incident. I've heard about the pig. Yeah. Most people now think that this is this was the, the beginning of the whole feud. The theft by a hat field of a pig belonging to the McCoys is reputed to have really been the spark to set fire to the smoldering tensions between the families. Mm-hmm. The subsequent trial took place in McCoy territory, but was presided over by a cousin of Devil Ants Hatfield. Okay. It hinged. Troubles brewing right there. It sure. hinged on the testimony of a star witness, Bill Statton. He was a McCoy relative married to a Hatfield. It gets more, more intriguing all the time. Then there was the romance between a young Hatfield and a young McCoy, and soon after that, uh, the feud would fester into a full-blown clan war lasting nearly 30 years and resulting in many more courtroom battles, several beatings, hangings, and shootings, bringing the blazing feud's death toll to 13 Ooh. Hatfields and McCoys. That was pretty serious. Now, many say that uh, that was a lot of fighting and death over something as as simple or as stupid as a pig, an argument over a pig. But honestly, I really believe that the beginning lay in something much more profound. The Civil War right. was, by all accounts, the bloodiest conflict in American history, and even to this divisive, day. Right. right. And and even now in modern times, we're well aware of the effects that right. war has on the fighting men and still are, were ill-equipped to deal with it, to, right. to provide the assistance that veterans need to live a healthy civilian life. And so imagine back then. Yeah. <clears throat> That how much more than the, the men of the two Appalachian families affected by the horrors they had seen and the fighting they'd done, and then they're expected to return back home and everybody and go just, home and live a normal life right, now. Put no, it, it just aside doesn't happen. <laughs> I really believe that the the origin of that famous feud was a direct result of the war and the had, lasting effects had its it roots had in it for right sure on the men, and so and they found that outlet in in the animosity between each or yeah between right. each other and then their families just. It continued just continued. It on. It's amazing. It continued for nearly thirty years. That's right. Now what? But now there, there's the Hatfields and the McCoys. There's still there's a still lot of them in that area, right? and uh, and they were actually on. We, we were talking about this on the Family Feud. They were on Family Feud. I remember seeing that back in the seventies. Their descendants were on the Family Feud. Right, yeah. and they have uh, reunions and and everything. Right. The feud is is gone. It's more of a. They've probably gone into marketing now. now you know? Right, <laughs> t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a stage or something out there with, you know, banjos and all uh-huh. of that. It's, yeah. So 
Anyway, that's that's my family story right there. In reenactments, probably. So I got you, pig. (laughs) Well, now speaking of pigs. Speaking of pigs, there was a there was a war called the Pig War, and uh, you might not have heard it, but the United States and England almost went to war with each other because of a pig. This was called the Pig War of 1859. Um, The United States and Great Britain almost fought a war. Uh, Well, not really exactly over a pig. It was really over which country would gain possession of the beautiful San Juan Islands, which are in the northern part of Puget Sound, just off the coast of Washington State. Um, Going back in history a little bit, the Treaty of Oregon in 1846, that established the boundary between the United States and uh, British Canada at the 49th parallel, which it still is throughout the whole northern tier of the, of the country, from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Ocean. And then it also ceded all of Vancouver Island to the British, even the part below the 49th parallel. However, that uh, treaty didn't make clear which country would possess the San Juan Islands, which lie in between the mainland and Vic- Vancouver Island. And for the next 13 years, both countries claimed the islands as their possessions. By the way, the islands are stunningly beautiful. They're really spectacular. Uh, in 1854, the British, owned Hudson, uh, the British owned Hudson Bay Company set up a sheep farm on the islands. Well, soon after, American settlers began making claims and clearing land to fa- for their own farms. Incidents of verbal shouts and threats among settlers and government representatives from both countries spouted from time to time. However, tensions reached a boiling point on June 15, 1859, when American farmer Lyman Cutler shot and killed a pig belonging to a British settler, Charles Griffin. How dare he? Yeah, it seems the pig was destroying Mr. Cutler's potato patch. He tried to keep the pig out, I think, but the pig kept coming back, so he had no recourse but to shoot the pig. Cutler told Griffin, though, what he had done, and he offered to pay him $10 for the pig. But Griffin claimed that the pig was worth at least $100, and the British authorities on the island told Cutler that he had to pay the $100 or face trial. Well, this greatly angered the American settlers on the island to that point, uh, to the point that on July 4th of uh, 1859, 14 American settlers stormed the British custom collector's office and they ran an American flag up his pole. (laughs) I'll show you. Word of the incident soon reached local military officials of both countries. U.S. Army Captain George Pickett, who would later gain fame as a Confederate general, arrived in the San Juan Islands with some 20 soldiers. He set up a camp, and he claimed the islands for the United States. This greatly enraged the British commander, Governor (laughs) Douglas, who was also the vice admiral of the Royal Navy Fleet, which was anchored at nearby Victoria on Vancouver Island. He called for an equal number of British Marines to come to the island, which they did on August the 3rd, though they stayed aboard ship. It looked like an actual shooting fight could break out at any minute. More American troops arrived until there were over 400. More British uh, ships arrived, too, but their sailors did not disembark. The British were well aware that opening fire on uh, on Americans uh, could have disastrous results, but they also didn't want to give up control of these islands. By the end of the summer, tensions began easing, even though both sides were still building up their presence. Because of the distance involved, it wasn't until September that America and British governments learned that they had almost gone to war in the San Juan <laughs> Islands. See, the telegraph was invented by this time, but it was still only on the east coast of the United States and within England. There were no wires strung out to the west and certainly no wires under the ocean uh, at this point, going back to England. 
uh, representatives of both government decided to jointly occupy the islands until an agreement could be reached. This had the unintended consequence of creating a lawless zone, as neither civil authority was actually in charge. Troublemakers, you know those troublemakers, they find their way. They found their way to the islands, and, and vice operations of all kinds ran unchecked. When the American Civil War broke out in 1861, priorities shifted away from the San Juans. The Americans and the British military units stationed there became friendly with one another and worked together to rid the islands of the vice operations. After the Civil War ended, the United States and Britain agreed to appoint an arbitrator to settle the dispute. Kaiser Wilhelm I of Germany was selected as the arbitrator in 1872. After appointing three geographers to study the matter, he ultimately decided in favor of the United States, <laughs> thus setting the matter and ending uh, ending the pig war. Ending the pig war. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of these stories that we're going to talk about, there's a lot of tension, right. you know, and it just takes a little bit to set everybody off. Right. So. And uh, the British actually showed a good deal of restraint, not pushing it too far, I think, there of... Um, of not bringing their soldiers on the islands themselves, but keeping them on their ships. Now for a different kind of animal. This is the War of the Stray Dog, 1925. This comes to us from History.com. In one of the strangest conflicts of the past hundred years, a dog inadvertently triggered an international conflict. The incident was the culmination of a long period of hostility, uh, hostility between Greece and Bulgaria. They're always at each other's throat. Can you believe it? which had been at odds for more than 10 years. Tensions finally boiled over in October 1925 when a Greek soldier was shot after allegedly crossing the border into Bulgaria while chasing his runaway dog. The shooting became a rallying cry for the Greeks, who soon after invaded Bulgaria and occupied several villages. They were about to begin shelling the city of Petrik when the League of Nations intervened and condemned the attack. An international committee later negotiated a ceasefire between the two nations, but not before the misunderstanding resulted in the deaths of some 50 people. Mm. So that was a rough go for the uh, for the dog, the, uh, the War of the Stray Dog in 1925. We need, we need music by Sarah McLaughlin for that story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we have the Rite of Spring Riot. Well, speaking of music. So, yeah, speaking of music, that's right. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be talking over uh, the Rite of Spring classical music. Here we go. So can you imagine classical music leading to violence? Especially this one. <laughs> Listen to how relaxing that is. Well, on May 29, 1913, composer Igor Stravinsky introduced his new ballet called The Rite of Spring. Accounts vary as to exactly what happened but it appears that the trouble started soon after the curtain lifted and the first notes began to play. Audience members hissed and jeered at the performers, and some hurled objects at the stage. Other members of the audience began yelling at the hissers to be quiet. I know this was in Paris, right? It was in Paris. In Paris, okay. Uh, while the orchestra was continuing to play, fist fights broke out between <laughs> ri the rival spectators. <laughs> Top hats were smashed and canes were used as weapons. I could, I could just imagine. I say, this the fight soon poured out into the street where one man had challenged another to a duel. Quickly, the police arrived and made arrests. So, what led to the outburst? 
Some say the crowd was jarred by the unusual sounds and choreography, but others Wait, say let's that. Let's listen to it a little bit more. Okay, I can kind of understand. It. <laughs> I, <laughs> others say that the disturbance was pre-planned by enemies of Stravinsky. Oh, they were they wanted to make a make a mess of his his opening. There yeah, you go. That makes sense. <laughs> so as you can imagine, there are a lot of conflicts arising from the partaking of alcohol. Oh well, yeah. No. Who would go figure that? That's so <laughs> weird. Here's just a few. The Saint Scholastica Day Riot of fifteen, or I'm sorry, thirteen fifty-five. So no, I had back. to look up Saint Scholastica Day, and uh, it's the the it's a saint, so it's right. a feast day of Saint Scholastica, which was um, oh, I can't remember. I think she it was she was a nun, right? And she was the predecessor of the Benedictine nuns. Okay, uh, but on February tenth. 1355, St. Scholastica's Day, two university students in Oxford, England, complained to the owner of the Swindlestock Tavern about the low quality of wine being served. When the tavern owner responded with stubborn and saucy language, <laughs> Can you and, imagine yeah, <laughs> I'm clutching my pearls, <laughs> the students threw their cups at the man's head and beat him up. How dare he? How dare he speak to us like that? This seemingly minor bar fight sparked three days of bitter rioting between the Oxford townspeople and university students. Oh, there's always tension there between college students and the townspeople. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking rightly so. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> the fighting reached a bloody climax on February 12th when a mob of some 2,000 townspeople descended on the university's academic halls and beat stabbed and even scalped several students before chasing the rest out of town now, didn't they realize these students bring money with them you I know mean, your this, livelihood might depend on these students being there you know yeah and this really escalated yeah. when the dust finally cleared 63 students and 30 townspeople lay dead oh, oh no. my gosh because of bad wine. Yes. <laughs> After an investigation, King Edward III levied harsh fines and penalties against the town of Oxford. For several hundred years afterwards, the town's mayor was forced to march to the university church each St. Scholastica day and hand over 63 pennies, one for each student killed. Well, that's quite a, that's quite a fine there. And the <laughs> have to bring it up every well, year. Well, but for hundred for years. years. For so, you years, know, maybe yeah. it paid for... Uh, I think it's just wine. a symbolic of remembering what you did. You have right. to do it. Right, bottle yeah. of wine by the end of that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, now here's another uh, another alcohol-infused uh, riot, the eggnog riot of 1826. I can understand why somebody would go to war over eggnog. <laughs> yeah, it's a little gross. <laughs> the eggnog riot of 1826 might be history's most extreme example of a holiday party gone wrong. No, wait, <laughs> let's just stop there because I <laughs> – are they, because, are they Irish? <laughs> <laughs> because I, uh, there's a lot of holiday parties <laughs> that gone go wrong. For sure. But I guess this is kind of the pinnacle. Okay. It's a good one. Well, the problems began on Christmas Eve when cadets at the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York, were having their traditional end-of-the-year party. Students again. Yeah, there we go. Young Even though there was a ban on alcohol, some of the cadets, including future Confederate President Jefferson Davis, managed to sneak in enough booze to concoct some rather potent eggnog. Revelers were consuming the strong batch well into the night. By early in the morning, they were becoming noticeably rowdy. When faculty members tried to put an end to the party, the school's North Barracks erupted into chaos. Cadets barricaded themselves into this room and then began smashing furniture and crashing windows. One even threatened his superior with a drawn sword. Now, that's not a good thing right there. 
By dawn, the eggnog had run out, and the cadets began to sober up, taking stock of the damage that they had done. Nineteen rioters were charged with disorderly conduct, and 12 were expelled from West Point. By the way, Jefferson Davis, well, he managed to dodge a court-martial because earlier in the night, he'd been ordered to his room, and he passed out before things got out of hand. (laughs) (laughs) Now, here's one of my favorite bizarre conflicts, and I I just love the name of it. The Toronto Clown and Firefighter Riot of of 1855. Who couldn't love clowns and firefighters fighting? And it involves alcohol. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, in How July, many clowns can you get into? <laughs> <laughs> in July 1855, a traveling circus called S.B. Howe's Star Troop Menagerie stopped in Toronto, Ontario for a series of shows. On the night of, uh, of, of July 12th, several clowns went to... <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a joke. Yeah, that really sounds like a joke. Several clowns went to a tavern that was rumored to also be a brothel. You know, how many clowns can you... Well, never mind. The, ta- <laughs> the tavern was also a hangout for Volunteer Firefighter Brigade, the Hook and Ladder Firefighting Company. I'll avoid the obvious joke there, and we'll just move right along. Both groups were pretty rowdy. The clowns with the show were the men who set up and took down the circus tent, while the firefighters had a reputation for brawling. Exactly how the trouble started is unclear. One version of the story says that a clown cut in line. (laughs) Another story said that a hat was accidentally knocked off the head of the boss clown. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of how it started, a brawl broke out and two firefighters were badly injured. <laughs> the fire brigade retreated and the clowns were victorious that day. Those clowns However, are scrappy. They're scrappy. They uh, took those firefighters that's right. on. However, they were they should have gone on out of town that di- that night rather than hang around for the next few days because at that time in Toronto there existed a fraternal organization called the Orange Order, which included a lot of firefighters and police officers. Word of the fight spread throughout the ranks of the Orange Order, and the next day, several showed up to confront the circus performers. When members of the Hook and Ladder showed up, mayhem broke out. All the tents, including the Big Top, were pulled down and set on fire. Wagons were overturned and destroyed. The clowns were mercilessly beaten. The chief of police, who was also an Orangeman, took his time sending out officers to help, and when they arrived... On the scene, the officers didn't do much to help the circus. They simply watched the destruction and the beatings. Oh, wow. The riot only stopped when the mayor showed up. He personally pulled an axe out of the hand of a firefighter who planned on killing a clown with it. The militia had to be called in, and the circus folk were allowed to grab their belongings that weren't destroyed. The riot was one of the major events that led to police reform in the city of of Toronto. So stay away from alcohol, kids. It uh, causes trouble. That seriously escalated. <laughs> Got out of hand pretty quickly, didn't it? And now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. So today's oddity is about a cat named Room 8. Room, room 8. Room 8. And there's there's a meaning behind its name. I uh, hope so. <laughs> it lived from 1947 to 1968. It was a neighborhood cat who wandered into a classroom, and I'm assuming mm-hmm. roommate. That's the school, yeah. Right. Uh, in 1952 at Elysian, I think that's how you pronounce it, Heights Elementary School in Echo Park, California. And he made himself at home. 
he lived there in the school during the school year and then disappeared for the summer. Then he would return again when classes the class started. Cat. Okay. This pattern continued without interruption until the mid-1960s. So then, okay, so when school started, news cameras would arrive at the school and they would wait for the, the cat's return, and he became famous this way. <laughs> he would just show up from the, on the day of school. That's right, and he would receive up to 100 letters a day addressed to, wow. to him at the school. Eventually, he was featured in a documentary called Big Cat, Little Cat, and a children's mm-hmm. book, A Cat Called Room 8. Uh, Look Magazine ran a three-page Room 8 feature by photographer Richard Hewitt in November 1962 titled Room 8, The School Cat. Now, as he got older, Room 8 was injured in a cat fight and suffered from feline pneumonia, so oh. a family near the school volunteered to take him in. The school's janitor would find him at the end of the school day, and then he would carry him across the street to the family's home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he actually had an obituary in the, the Los Angeles Times, oh, nice. and it rivaled that of major political figures running three columns with a photograph. Oh, right. The cat was so famous that his obituary ran in papers as far away as Hartford, Connecticut. Huh. The students raised funds for his gravestone, and so he has a tombstone. He's buried at the Los Angeles Pet Memorial Park in uh, Calabasas, in my, Calabasas, Calabasas, California. California. Okay. I think so, yeah. So the elementary school has a wall mural on the outside of the school that features Room 8, and the teachers read his book to each new class. Room 8's paw prints are immortalized in cement on mm-hmm. the sidewalk outside the school. And in 1972, a cat shelter was uh, started in his name called the Room 8 Memorial Foundation. And we'll have a picture of uh, of him, and he's pretty grumpy looking. <laughs> he may have been older by that <laughs> but time. But yeah, he may, he may have been. And this uh, is why he didn't get any other name. <laughs> room, room 8. Room 8. But, but, you know, cats can be very calming and comforting, for sure. You know, to people, we, one of the schools where I taught in my many years of teaching actually had a library cat um, that would hang out in the school library and the kids enjoyed seeing them so it was and, always fun and i think it's a great way for especially for an elementary school and those kids starting school and and have having that anxiety to right. have a, a pet in there i think that's a great idea well now speaking of los angeles and back to our topic of weird conflicts have you ever heard of the great los angeles air raid also known as the battle of los angeles of 1942 i have this is fascinating <laughs> And still under a lot of debate. Right. Well, it's a strange occurrence from World War II. This was just less than three months out after Pearl Harbor. On the night of February 24, 1942, a disturbing report was called in to local authorities that 25 Japanese airplanes had been spotted approaching the city. Immediately, an air raid siren sounded, and a blackout was ordered. Hollywood searchlights were now repurposed for searching the dark skies in hope of spotting the invading flyers. The 37th Coast Artillery Brigade started firing at these supposed aircraft hovering over the city. More than 1,400 shells were fired, though no planes were actually shot down. However, the noise and the debris of the shelling caused considerable panic on the ground. At least five civilian deaths were attributed to the chaos resulting from the firing, and that included two heart attacks. It had been rumored at the time that the Japanese had figured out how to launch airplanes from submarines. That, that would be a good That's trick. Impressive. you know. That would be a really good trick. Uh, there was also a theory that Japan had a secret base in Mexico. Due to lack of any clear explanation by the government, uh, government authorities, these rumors persisted throughout the war. However, later on in 1983, the Office of Air Force History released their findings after a thorough investigation of the incident. 
They concluded that there never were any Japanese planes over Los Angeles, that the objects in the sky that night of February 24th, 1942, weather balloons. That's right. There's there's still a lot of debate. And if you notice those dates, this happened in 1942. Right. And the Air Force... Uh, Office of Air Force History released their findings in 1983. So it was like 40 years later. <laughs> and there's know. still people that, that debate this. So okay. while the military eventually attributed the incident to war nerves and the tension surrounding the whole uh, the, the whole of the time after Pearl Harbor right. and the sighting of an errant weather balloon, ufologists have speculated for years that our guns were actually firing at an extraterrestrial, at many extraterrestrial spaceships. spaceships yeah. That they had seen on their radar because there actually was radar activity that right. that's that started all of this. And there's a there's a picture of the searchlights focusing on some kind of objects. That's right. Know. And many people okay, so across the civilians and the soldiers, some people saw one thing, some right. people saw nothing, and some people saw many things right. in the sky. So so there was no consensus of what actually was seen or what actually uh, was up there. Uh, whether it was one balloon or several balloons or right. aircraft or any of that. Um, but I will say that this theory provided the inspiration for the Steven Spielberg film, 1941 Battle Los Angeles, that was loosely based on the event. Very, very much so. And, uh, you know, I think during the time right after Pearl Harbor, it caught people by surprise so much that uh, fear was certainly very evident and uh, sometimes that can lead people to see things that may or may not actually be there for right sure. there was a lot of speculation of what the the japanese could and couldn't do right well that leads us to another another weird battle uh, speaking of uh, seeing things in the sky this is the interrupted battle of the third mithridactic war and we're going all the way back to the year 70 bc um this is the um, I didn't was this is actually the third Mithridactic War. I didn't personally even know there was a first and the second one. I haven't <laughs> been paying attention. I got to be be more aware of what's going on. I suppose I didn't get to those Dead Sea Scrolls. Right, time. that's right. Those two. This was the last in a series of wars between the Roman Republic and the army of the Mithridites. Uh, the the I'm sorry, Mithridates, the sixth king of Pontus and Armenia Minor. That clears that up for you. There, there it is. There. Yeah. The time was approximately 70 B.C. The location of this battle that wasn't was in Phrygia in what we now know as northern Turkey. The Romans, under the command of (laughs) (laughs) Lucius Licinius Lucullus, the old triple L they called him, arrived with some 32,000 soldiers. The fourth of the Mithridites was reportedly even larger. Tensions were mounting as the forces of these enormous armies were approaching each other on a broad plain. According to eyewitness accounts, just as the soldiers were approaching each other, the sky suddenly split apart, and a large silvery-hot meteor resembling a gigantic hog's head (laughs) (laughs) bombarded the battlefield between the two armies. Yeah, I mean, uh, a hog's head meteor. There you go. The rattled soldiers on both sides decided that this was not a good day to fight and thus withdrew from the field without either side suffering any loss. So that was the end of the the interrupted battle of the Third Mithridactic War. The Romans eventually did... um, emerged victorious in 63 B.C., for those of you wanting the follow-up story, <laughs> after Pompey the Great succeeded Lucilius as the commanding general. 
Yeah, that's fun. Let's get ready to fight. Let's get ready to rumble, and then yeah, all of a sudden, boom. <laughs> okay, maybe not. Yeah, today. They, they, maybe this isn't a good day to fight. Let's let's stop and contemplate what we're about to do. Maybe this is a sign <laughs> that we should not go forward today. Now, here's another uh, humorous battle that we want to talk about. This was called the War of Jenkins' Ear, 1738. In uh, 1738, a British sailor named Robert Jenkins displayed a severed, decomposing ear before the members of Parliament. In his testimony, he stated that a Spanish Coast Guard officer had sliced off his ear seven years earlier as punishment for smuggling. Such outrageous treatment, shouted the members of Parliament. Soon the British declared war on Spain, beginning what became known as the War of Jenkins' Ear. Okay, that, that escalated quickly. <laughs> All well, of a sudden, here's well, a ear, it was and just they checked to make sure he only had one ear. Uh, the, the thing <laughs> is, uh, it, was, it was really just an excuse, because they were kind of looking for a reason to go to war with Spain. Anyway, Spain and England had been angry with each other for nearly 40 years. Jenkins' Ear um, merely served as a convenient catalyst. The conflict had its roots in territorial disputes, over the border between Spanish Florida and British Georgia, all the way over here in the New World, also known as the Florida-Georgia line. Okay, for you country music fans, that was just for you. Oh. <laughs> Fighting began late in uh, 1739 and continued for two years in Florida and Georgia, with neither side emerging as the clear victor. Now, the conflict later merged with the more expansive war of Austrian succession, which I kind of like. You know, this war is just not getting enough notice well, let's, let's let's merge. Let's merge with the Austrian War, and uh, we'll be able to get better play. Now, that didn't end until 1748. So, you know, <laughs> that was yeah. the War of Jenkins' Ear. But here's the thing. Jenkins goes in and... and Look, my ear. Seven years ago. Yeah, seven That's years ago. That's my point. Seven years ago, <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, we need to fight about that. Well, maybe it took him that long to get back to England. <laughs> <laughs> and... and and he carried it around for seven years. Yeah, well, Nasty. you know, you might run into a doctor who can reattach it or something. <laughs> I don't know. Now for today's bookshop spot, the part of the show where we take you on a virtual tour of one of the most magical of places, an independent bookshop. Today's featured bookstore is The Bookworm in Bernardsville, New Jersey. Uh, it's located on 99 Claremont Road in a quaint and honestly a beautiful Victorian-style building or, or really a house that's more than 100 years old. Their website states, We offer everything from the latest books to old favorites. Come in and browse our selection of books, unique greeting cards, journals, puzzles, book-related apparel, stuffed animals, and more. And if you don't see what you want, just ask. We can order it for you. The Bookworm was established in Bernardsville in 1980. And in 1985, Mary Ann Dunahee purchased the store. She says that by adding excellent staff members who provide exceptional customer service, the clientele has continued to grow and grow, and it, that's very apparent on their Instagram and Facebook. You can also find them online at Bookworm, Bernardsville, at Indie, Light, that's L-I-T-E dot org. They say it's a cozy place to shop. Okay, so this brings us to the Great Sausage Duel of 1865. <laughs> I love this. Rudolf Ludwig Karl Virchow was a remarkably interesting German man. Sounds like it with a name like that. How right? could he not Seriously. 
He, he had to live up to the name his mama gave him. Right. <laughs> Extremely well-rounded in his interests and passion, passions. Virchow was a physician, an anthropologist, a pathologist, a biologist, writer, mm. and politician, among other things. He was known or is known as the father of modern pathology. His colleagues referred to him, and can you imagine your friends calling you this, uh, the Pope of Medicine. Pope of Medicine. Oh, right. So Rudolf Virchow was alarmed at the fact that a lot of Germans at that time were consuming sausages that were being produced in less than sanitary factories. You'd never find that today. Uh, Never, right? (laughs) A lot of the meat being sold from these factories were infected with the trichinella, trichinella parasites that caused many Germans to be infected with trichinosis, the symptoms of which are diarrhea, abdominal pain, and vomiting, which can eventually lead to death, and a large number of Germans were, in fact, dying from this. That's not good. So Virchow, who was very active in politics, was promoting government intervention to force the sausage makers to clean up their act. This cost money, of course, and the current Prussian chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, did not agree on spending money for that. Right. He instead was really big on defense and funneled a lot of the country's money to that end. Virchow was very outspoken with condemnation of Bismarck's excessive military budget. Well, this all sounds real familiar somehow. <laughs> so, <laughs> where this is go. <laughs> so to quote an, an 1893 publication, at the end of a particularly severe verbal attack, Bismarck felt himself personally affronted and sent seconds to Virchow with a challenge to fight a duel. The man of science was found in his laboratory hard at work at experiments, which had for their object the discovery of a means of destroying trichinae, which were uh, making great ravages in Germany. Oh, said the doctor, a challenge from Prince Bismarck, eh? Well, well, as I am the challenged party, I suppose I have the choice of weapons. Here they are. He held up two large sausages, (laughs) which seemed to be exactly alike. One of these sausages, he said, is filled with trichinae. It is deadly. The other is perfectly wholesome. Externally, they cannot be told apart. Let His Excellency do to me the honor, do do me the honor to choose whichever of these he wishes to eat, and I will eat the other. Wow. Though the proposition was as reasonable as any dueling proposition could be, <laughs> like Prince Bismarck's representatives refused it. No duel was fought, and no one accused Virchow of cowardice. So oh. this, uh, he was, He was very me. smart. That yeah, was, was very smart. smart. Now, I'm yeah. not sure he said it so eloquently right there, but... He might have had writers kind of touch up what he said. <laughs> but he reminds me of Vizzini in The Princess Bride. Okay, right? With the two poison cups of wine. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Right. But apparently Virchow was much more clever because he came out unscathed. Right. <laughs> so, Good job, Virchow. <laughs> so to end on a positive note, the Christmas truce of 1914. Oh, so the, so instead one. of a strange conflict, this is a strange truce. Right. On December 7th, 1914, Pope Benedict the 19th suggested a temporary hiatus of fighting during during World War One for the celebration of Christmas, but the warring countries refused to create any official ceasefire. But some of the soldiers along the Western Front declared their own unofficial truce. Right. On Christmas Eve, troops from both sides could be heard singing Christmas carols to each other across the lines. The Germans even had a brass band joining in from time to time. Then at first light on Christmas morning, some German soldiers emerged from their trenches, tentatively crossed no man's land, and approached the Allied lines, calling out in English, Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. Oh, cool. 
At first, the Allied soldiers thought it was a trick because, you know, of course they would. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then they realized that the Germans were unarmed. They, too, then climbed out of their trenches and shook hands with the Germans. The men continued to sing Christmas songs as they shared presents of cigarettes and plum pudding. There was even a friendly game of soccer. Some soldiers used this short-lived ceasefire for a more somber task, the retrieval of bodies of fellow combatants Mm -hmm. who had fallen within the no-man's land between the lines. The momentary show of Yuletide goodwill happened during the Christmas of the Great War and sadly was never repeated. Future attempts at holiday ceasefires were quashed by officers' threats of disciplinary action, but it served as a heartening proof of the shared humanity among soldiers of both sides. Right. I heard they showed each other pictures of their families. and you know, Right, yeah. right. How uh, how just wonderful is that in the right. midst of a horrible war? Absolutely. And now it's time, boys and girls, for the Trivia Challenge. Uh, we actually have a winner from our uh, Superstition episode. The question uh, was this. There was an amulet found in many cultures and locales, but specifically from Turkey, that is traditionally made from colored glass fashioned into bracelets, jewelry, wall hangings, and even a large sculpture in the Netherlands. It's said to ward off evil. It has made its way into our modern world by being featured as an emoji. And what was this amulet symbol called? Well, the winner is Rona Philipson. Yay, Yay, Rona. And the name of the amulet is Nazar. That's the name of the emoji. I think it's, let's see, I think it's Nazar. N-A-Z-A-R, Nazar. I'm not sure. But I do know this. My boss, the president of the company that I work for, has one of these hanging over the door of his office. Has he had good luck? He, You know, I mean, the company's been around for 40 years. Well, that's something. For our Behold the Mermaid episode, the the trivia challenge question was, what English folk song, sung by many, but but most notably Peter, Paul, and Mary, features a cursing mermaid? It doesn't seem to go together, does it? (laughs) Our our winner is Sabra Rangel. Is that? Sabra. 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 Okay. Sabra. Sabra Rangel. She correctly answered with The Keeper of the Eddystone Light. You guys ought to to look up that that little folk song. It's, It's really cute. Okay. And unlike Steve, I'm not going to sing it. (laughs) Uh, Okay, and so you know how it goes. First, like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast. Mm -hmm. Like and share this episode post of uh, Strange Conflicts. Put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post, and the first person to do all of that will be the winner. Oh, yeah. It's exciting to be the winner. That's right. So what have you got for us, Steve? Well, in 1962... A shadowy figure approached the fence of a Duluth, Iowa air base. A soldier raised his gun and shot at it, which triggered a sabotage alarm. Pilots scrambled in response to the nuclear war they thought had started. Luckily, an officer sped toward the tarmac, flashing his car's headlight, and stopped the launch. What was the shadowy figure that nearly started World War III? Hmm... That's all we have for today. Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode. Audio is produced by Philip Sinkfeld, and he makes uh, occasional Make comments. Yes. <laughs> Maybe. 
Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. You can connect with us through our Facebook and Instagram. And if you have an idea, and we're, we are receiving ideas already, uh, that you would like to hear us cover in a future episode, send us an email at staycurious at remnantstew.com. I think Phil makes intelligent interjections for the just comments. You know, you're thing. going with that whole compliment right. day, right? It's compliment That's day right. for sure. <laughs> Still compliment day. <laughs> now, before you go, please hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. Head over to iTunes and leave us a review. We love reading your reviews. People have been so complimentary towards us on their reviews. It's been really nice. It means the world to us. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, your commanding officer, and your ninja instructor. (laughs) Instructor. And until next time, remember to choose to be kind and always stay curious. curious.